1: where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your
0: podcasts. Money should be making me happy. Or at least that was what I told myself on that fateful day that I read Jim Daly's book The White Coat Investor and realized I was financially independent. Yet instead... Instead, I was panicked, anxious, and quite a bit depressed. You see, I had spent so many years thinking money would solve all my problems, be the magic elixir to make sadness or pain go away. And it wasn't. Don't get me wrong. I knew that money helped. Those trips to Mexico on spring break with the kids that I still daydream about today couldn't have happened without cold, hard cash. Neither could the beautiful house that has nurtured me and my family for over 20 years. Money helped all that along, but didn't exactly create the happiness. I quickly realized that there were other dimensions to my happiness, things that I had ignored in order to aggressively and rapidly accumulate wealth. I was out of balance. I had neither happy money nor a happy life. Jason Vitaug is founder at Frugal, creator of The Road to Financial Wellness and author of You Only Live Once, a national bestseller and New York Times reviewed book. His recently published book is Happy Money, Happy Life, a Multidimensional Approach to Health, Wealth and Financial Freedom. Jason vtug welcome to Earn and Invest. Describe for me the moment that you first realized that you had become a victim of burnout.
1: I think it started with with the physical illness. There's so much that we do with our mind, the mental gymnastics, in trying to say everything is okay. And there's a point where our brain just says enough is enough, and the mental gymnastics appears itself physically. So there's a physical manifestation. And so when I couldn't get out of bed, when I was tired and lethargic, I knew that I was burnt out. There was no more attempts at mental gymnastics to get me to the point where I would be good. And so I needed the change.
0: You know, it's kind of funny. You mentioned this idea of mental gymnastics. And I realized, you know, we do that a lot in life. We start telling ourselves stories that don't necessarily serve us. But they make everything feel okay. On the other hand, your body doesn't lie to you. And you were getting to this point, right? Where your body was saying, okay, this isn't working.
1: Well, yeah, it's because that we're taught that that positivity... And that, I'm, I'm big on optimism and positivity. And so anything that you've read and you followed, that is me. But also there's a point that we need to truly understand our situation and no amount of everything is going to be okay, everything will work out in the end, is going to help us deal with the realities that it's right in front of us. And so when we continue on this path of suppressing those feelings, it will manifest itself physically. And those physical ailments are those things that you cannot ignore. And the more we suppress what we're going through, the more we don't express what we're going through. Well, guess what? You're going to feel tired, lethargic. You can't get out of bed. And all of a sudden, there's a ripple effect in your entire life. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, yeah, there you see, th- things didn't really
0: didn't work out. I feel like you and I share some of the story because I was in a similar situation. Like From the outside, everyone would look in and say, hey, your life is going great. Tell me about why you were burning out.
1: I was burning out because I wasn't purposeful in terms of the things that I was working towards. And a lot of that had to do with some financial traumas in the past, childhood traumas that weren't related to to money. And it was focusing on the belief that the more I achieved and the more that I could show people how well I was doing, then everything was going to be okay. And there's a point where we're grinding and grinding along on trying to achieve all the things we've set out in life and discovering, yeah, it's just you get worn out and then thrown out with all those gears that are grinding. And that's exactly what happened to me. It was... This idea that I could repair everything in the past that's happened in order for me to feel joy and happiness and success and setting these big lofty goals. And that was a key thing. I achieved a lot of these goals when people set uh, the goal of climbing up the corporate ladder and becoming an executive, earning six figures. I achieved all those things regardless of the situation that I grew up in. And so that was a, a big mark to say, okay, well, I'm following the American dream. I'm following the advice that older generations have told me to do, but I wasn't necessarily feeling joy and happiness along the way. And that had to do with the fact that I'm setting these goals
0: and not being present in that moment. I wanna talk in a moment about your career path and climbing the corporate ladder. But before I do, tell us about some of these childhood traumas. They obviously were kind of seeping into your consciousness, even though you were trying to ignore them. What were they? A lot of that had to do with, So me not understanding, I think this
1: is a good point to preface this. I didn't have a very healthy relationship with with my parents growing up, and that had a lot to do with this generational gap. So if you're thinking about being a first gen coming into the country, parents had this hopes and dreams and goals, and they worked really hard, but- me being American and being here in this country, I have a different set of values and different set of beliefs. And so that is a conflict between your parents who come to America to create a better life and their kids who's raised in America who believe with a different set of values and goals. And so there was that conflict. And it was me also not having all the luxuries that I would see my friends have and realizing that there was some inadequacy in terms of that, not just the fact that we're, we're immigrants not the fact that we grew up in an urban setting and we didn't have all the luxuries in life. It was also me not realizing that my parents grew up in poverty. And I have never felt a point in my life where I didn't have enough food to eat. I didn't have shelter my parents did. So now understanding as I'm older, my dad telling me that there were weeks where he didn't know if he was going to eat. And so he would be out in the street trying to make money or trying to beg for food. So I've never experienced that. So now I understand why my parents are the way they are with money. Not that they came, they they worked really hard. They saved a little bit, but they were also pretty frivolous when it came to to saving and investing because they, they didn't grow up with that mentality. And so for them, getting access to credit, being able to buy the things that they needed just to survive affected their relationship with money and affected my relationship with money, which ultimately led to my own demise in terms of getting into credit card debt, not saving enough, and then perpetuating that that issue that I mentioned in terms of burnout that led to
0: that too as well. As I'm listening to you talk about this, I imagine that there's a major disconnect, right? Because having parents who grew up in poverty, who then immigrated to the United States, I imagine the idea was money will solve everything. And then here you are, this young, successful guy who's making money, who quote unquote has way more than his parents probably ever had. And yet it wasn't solving your problems. And I imagine that, There was a problem relating right to what your parents kind of grew up with and probably handed down to you in modeling. And then your own internal feelings when you got to that place where you had some real financial stability. That's exactly it. Because they grew up with the belief that money is going to solve all their
1: problems. And it did up to a point. And then I grew up with a different set of issues and problems where money necessarily wasn't going to solve. And that was the disconnect. So for, for me growing up, it was about working hard, keeping your head down, just, just don't make put any attention <laughs> on you and just do the work, make money and live a good life. And, and so for me, I knew there was something much more. And so my parents worked really hard for us to survive But also to give us the opportunity to strive for something much more, something more than they can even imagine. But then I realized on this quest that there is an opportunity for me to thrive. So I just didn't necessarily need to survive or strive. I could actually thrive. And that's where the disconnect occurred because I no longer had to work really hard for money. They set me up where I can get to a point where I needed I could work less I could attain some of these American dreams that weren't related to just income. They were related to a lifestyle. They're related to something much more. And me realizing, okay, I can't talk to them about pursuing a film degree. And that's how I started. I started college wanting to become a film major and my parents looking at me, you're never gonna make money. You're Mm -hmm. never gonna make money. What is wrong with you? And so what did I do? I switched my major from film to business because that's where I thought people made money. And then not just in business, I switched it into finance because that's where people made a lot of money in finance. And so following that path, following that trajectory, that's where I found myself as the, the, the VP of marketing for a financial institution. So I followed that path and realizing, okay, I'm not as happy as I thought I would be. I do have the money and the means to do many things but I'm still looking for something much more. And so for me, I needed to do the work to figure out what would bring more joy and happiness.
0: I think that brings us to an important part of your book. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today is how we define happiness. Before before we get to maybe how we do that today, Talk about how you defined happiness back then, right? So you're senior VP of marketing for a financial institution. You're climbing up the corporate ladder. You're really successful. What did happiness look like to you then kind of as you were getting to that point of burnout or what was your conception of it?
1: Yeah, my definition of happiness back then was all about achievement. Mm -hmm. It was getting the fancy title. It was getting more money. And it was things that I would define today as being rich. So having a flashy car, living in the perfect zip code with the nice big homes and going on fancy vacations and being able to share that with people. So it was the outward expression that to me was the definition of happiness. And so when you just strive for achievements, when you're striving for titles and salaries and expensive cars and vacations, well, guess what? That will lead to burnout, because the whole cycle is about just achieving, 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 and not gaining a self sense of fulfillment. And that's what's changed with me. It's understanding that there's a difference between achievement and fulfillment. And so fulfillment is something that I can feel along the way while I strive for the for the things that I want to achieve. And so that's about being present in the moment. And that's also something a bit more internal as opposed to external. So that's something that I feel versus something that I'm trying to express or impress people with.
0: So there's a dichotomy there between achievement and fulfillment. There's also another dichotomy which you talk about, the difference between happiness and well-being, I want to get to that in a minute, but part of your search for this understanding of happiness and writing this book, Happy Money, Happy Life, was to do a non-scientific study. Can you at least explain what that is and and what kind of data you gathered?
1: Yeah, so the most interesting thing was I wanted to share all the happiness studies that relate to money in this book, but I also wanted to interpret it in a way that people could understand. And a lot of the data and a lot of the research that I've read and many of the things that you'll read in this book... We'll also talk about some of the articles or the news clips that you're probably listening to when it comes to the relationship between money and happiness. But I wanted people to understand there is a connection with all these studies to wellness and well-being. And wellness and well-being, it's something that we hear a lot about, but also it's, it's more focused on the things we can purchase, such as the candle or the spa treatment or this, this or that. And I wanted people to understand that wellness and well-being is something a bit more than just these little tchotchkes or these little things that we are purchasing. And so when I did the non-artful scientific study, I spoke with a hundred people of different socioeconomic means, and I wanted to relate their experience with the data that I was reading. And there was a correlation. People stated that happiness related to owning one's time. It's about control over kind of or the idea of control over their life was very essential, spending on other people, gaining more experiences than stuff. So there was this correlation. But then at the end of the day, what the data from these research studies miss is that the nuances, I think, that affect people's perception of their life and also their feeling of happiness. And so I wanted to share it through these stories. So really take, take the data and share the stories, my own as well as others, to get people an understanding of what this all means to them and how they can apply to their life.
0: It's really ironic, right, that the wellness or well-being industry, and it certainly has become a huge industry, is all... Really connected to this idea of pur- purchases. What do you think well being is for you?
1: Well, I want to say too that we live in this capitalistic society, and there's this idea of consumption. So the idea that we can consume enough to achieve happiness—that's that's one piece of it. And I have a chapter that I talk about serve a purpose, not a purchase. And I think a lot of that has to deal with this belief that we can buy our way into happiness. We can buy our way into well-being. And so I wanted to push against that. There's nothing wrong. I like nice candles. I like a nice (laughs) meal. I like a good massage. So there is nothing wrong with quote unquote self-care. But I want people to understand that we don't want to just feel good for the moment. We want to make decisions with our money that create a lifetime of wellness and well-being. Because when I define wellness and well-being, it's an active pursuit. So that means it's something that we we do. It's something that we choose to do on a daily basis. So we don't arrive at wellness and well-being and say, okay, I feel good. I feel well. It's something that we're constantly working towards. It's It's sort of like you want to maintain this health. And there's going to be illnesses along the way. There are going to be things that are going to distract us. But ultimately, we are moving. We are taking the steps necessary to be better the next day. And so for me, the way I define wellness and well-being it is at active pursuit. It's about making intentional decisions with our money that creates the path we actually want to walk on, as opposed to just dealing with the symptoms. And I think that is the issue that I have with the self-care industry. It's just saying, with this purchase, you're going to feel better. You're going to feel happier. And we all know that, that we deserve, and I say that, you deserve to be happy but not necessarily through these minor purchases. You deserve to be happy. And that requires being more intentional and mindful of how we spend our money that adds to kind of the long-term well-being as opposed to the short-term gratification.
0: Did any of those hundred people you interviewed say, no, actually purchasing stuff is my happiness. Like that's really what gets me going. I mean, was there anyone of that whole group who kind of said, I kind of am that stereotype that marketing America is looking for.
1: Interestingly enough, there were some, but they always had, but so <laughs> there was a caveat to everything that they were saying. So here's a thing too, that I've learned. It doesn't matter if you spend your money on experiences or you spend your money on stuff. We all have different values. We all come from different places. And I want to honor that. And I want to recognize that you do have different lived experiences and you may value stuff more than experiences or experiential uh, spending. And that's okay. But most of the time when you dig deeper into the conversation of stuff, most people will tell you, I buy this stuff because I feel better about myself. Or I can share this experience with other people. And so th- there is that there is that connection and they understand that versus those of us, and I was certainly part of this group, where we're mindlessly spending on stuff, believing that was happiness. And then eventually realizing that there was something deeper that we were searching for. And so it's okay. And I'm a big believer this. It's okay if you have the financial means to go buy that expensive luxury car, if it's not taking you away from the things that you truly value. And what I've discovered in this study, there were people who would purchase that luxury car that would trap them in the job they actually hated. So they use that vehicle to feel good about the situation that they hated. And and also realizing eventually it trapped them in that situation. So they needed to make a better decision. And so that's, that, that's an important note to make.
0: In my opinion, I think we don't talk enough about the hedonic treadmill when it comes to experiences, right? So we always talk about the hedonic treadmill, this idea that buying things gives us immediate punch of dopamine. We feel really good, but that wears off quickly. And then it's to buying the next thing, the so-called treadmill. I've seen and definitely interacted with people who do the same thing with experiences, right? So they become experienced junkies, and they spend a lot of money on experiences, and it gives them a high for short term, and then it's on to the next experience. And I think you made such an important point is it's it's not the thing, and it's not the experience, it's who you shared it with and what it meant. And it's kind of those memory dividends and those type of things. Which I guess brings us to, I think, a sentinel question in your book, and it's an age-old disagreement. I've argued it with many, many people, and you've certainly gone through it in the book, this idea of can money buy happiness? You say both yes and no. Explain to me, because I think that's like one of the lines in this book that you really walk is how much can money buy happiness versus is it not necessary at all? Because you fall kind of in between, at least in my opinion. Explain some of that.
1: Yeah, so I wanted people to understand that money can buy happiness, but money isn't happiness. And so I think people confuse money as being the answer to happiness. And so the more money you have, the happier that you will be. But all the studies show, and through my lived experiences, and through the experiences of others that's been shared with me, they tell me that money can buy happiness, but only up to a point. And so that was the most fascinating thing. Having these conversations with people, they're like, yes, money can buy happiness because it helps us pay for the essentials in life. And those essentials are housing, food, medicine, but also some of the things that bring us a bit of joy. And that joy can be temporary. So money can help us buy happiness but when we start thinking about money in itself as happiness then we start setting financial goals and those financial goals they not may not be related to our actual core values the things we value the most and so we'll go and and i share a story of someone setting a financial independence number and realizing at that point, they bought back their time, but they didn't necessarily knew what to do with that time. And so they were more depressed. They were more anxious. They were more like, what am I going to do with my life? Because I thought the answer was just reaching this financial number. And so I do walk that line because I want people to understand that happiness is so subjective and it's nothing that I can't tell you that you will be happier if you chose the entrepreneurial route versus the corporate route, you will not be happier if you are making less money and spending more time with your family versus making a bit more and also being able to spend more time with your family. It's very subjective. And I, and I pose kind of this rhetorical question right in the book, which is, why is it that people can be happy while others are sad? Why can we be happy in meeting a stranger at the same time being held by a loved one? So happiness is very subjective. And I wanted people to understand that and also understand the context and how money
0: plays a role because that's the society that we live in. So I definitely, my entrance into personal finance was the financial independence retire early movement. And as you were talking about this whole idea of you know building to a net worth, et cetera, do you think the FIRE movement gets it wrong? Because I feel like we spend a heck of a lot of time talking about our net worth goals and safe withdrawal rates and those kind of things. And I have to say, in my own path, I eventually started thinking those things are kind of beside the point. So do you think that kind of that typical movement right now, the FIRE movement, is getting it wrong? Well, what's interesting is that I was, I guess,
1: FIRE before I knew there was a thing. And so I was financially secured and I retired early from my corporate job. And it's been, what, 10, 12 years. And so kind of one of the things that I've I've learned about the movement is that people who are stressing or not stressing, but people who are looking at achieving a very hefty net worth goal or that financial independence number they are optimists. They believe that there is something much better. And so I want people to lean into that optimism. So there's nothing wrong with setting financial goals, but I think what the FIRE movement got wrong, and it certainly has been changing. And I think it's a lot of uh, people like you, you're voicing your experience and helping people understand that there's so much more than that financial independence number. And there's so much time between today and achieving that number that we need to make some of these more mindful choices, that we live in the present moment and not when we achieve that net worth goal. And so I think there is nothing wrong with setting an aggressive number. There is nothing wrong with cutting back and earning more, but there is something wrong when we don't value time in making memories and with our family over the time value of money. And I think that's where I I push against this, this notion of we should only filter every life decision based on finances to achieve this net worth goal. And we're not looking at our life holistically. We may be sacrificing other parts of ourselves in order to achieve this goal. And once we achieve this goal, we realize that we're alone. We don't necessarily feel any happier. And so that's why that multidimensionality approach to me it's it's very vital, and I think can help evolve and elevate the fire community. Does money buy time? Money does buy time, and and so so here's here's the truth that we all know that many of us exchange our time for a paycheck. So money helps us buy back our time. So if we have enough money saved, we can essentially own our time because we now have the means to pay for our basic living expenses. And so even with that said, you owning your time because of money doesn't doesn't necessarily give you the purpose or the direction that you need. And that's something you need to figure out on the path to financial independence. That's something you need to figure out while you're on that journey. Because I've spoken with a number of folks, I think a few years ago, When You Only Live Once came out, my first book, I talk about that time is the most valuable resource that you possess. And I wanted people to become really obsessed with it to understand that time is both an asset and a liability. It's an asset because it has value and we exchange our time for money because that's the system that's been built. And it's also a liability. It's a liability because it is borrowed. We don't know when our time is up. And the way we pay back that liability is with a life best lived. And so that doesn't happen once we achieve a financial goal. That happens along the journey. And what I wanted others in the movement, in the community to understand, is that you don't have to wait for that magic number. You don't have to wait until you achieve this net worth goal to start living. Because you never know what's going to happen. And I think... It's a testament to my belief and my philosophy as we've gone through the pandemic that there's things that we can control and there are things that that are totally out of our control. And truthfully, people who had the financial means were able to ride this, this new world that we live in much better than those who did not have the financial means. And I want people to understand that the financial aspect does help you along the way. But then I spoke with others who are financially independent or on that path who are suffering because they sacrificed their social health, their social assets to achieve these financial goals. And when that part of society shifted in terms of we were quarantined, we were alone, well, they didn't have enough people to lean onto to, to weather the storm. And so for me, it's important for us to talk about the journey, not just the destination.
0: We are talking to Jason Vitug. He is the founder at Frugal, creator of The Road to Financial Wellness and author of You Only Live Once, a national bestseller and New York Times reviewed book. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. Usa.com. That's landroverusa.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Jason V. Tug. His most recently published book, Happy Money, Happy Life, A Multidimensional Approach to Health, Wealth and Financial Freedom is available online and in bookstores. Now, Jason, tell us about your mom being diagnosed with Parkinson's. How did that affect your financial trajectory?
1: Well, that's probably one of the most shocking things in my life. I think I know that illnesses happen, and I've certainly spoken with a number of people who've been diagnosed with, with cancer and other diseases. And there was just something profound in being in the doctor's room with my mother and being diagnosed with Parkinson's, something we already thought was the case. But hearing the words from the doctor changed everything. And for me, it was a pivotal moment because again, it emphasized there are things we can control and there are things that we cannot control. We can't control what happens to our body as we age. And so for me, it was an exclamation point in my belief that we need to live well today while also thinking and planning for a better tomorrow. And for me, being in the financial position that i was in financially secure had had the the means and work for myself i could take the time to be with my mother to get her through the emotional roller coaster of being diagnosed with parkinsons to help her go through the doctor visits there was a year where i was in doctors offices probably 40 or 50 times and so when people looked at me uh, my friends in the personal finance space and and in, and in this community, they went and they said, What happened to you within this period of time? And I realized it was my financial independence that allowed me the opportunity to spend the time with my mom to help her through this diagnosis and to help her through this initial period of her life where everything changed. She had to retire early. She had to change the way she lived her life. And also me. I had to change my way of living as well and becoming the caregiver for, for both my parents. And so it reemphasized the importance of being financially well in order to take care of the people that we love, to be able to take care of the things that are important to us. And I said, I think I wrote in the book too, like, what's the purpose of making all this money and achieving these financial goals if I can't be there for my mom, if I can't be there for the for the time that they need? And so, again, it was just a, it just emphasized my belief and philosophy on money's role in our lives.
0: Seeing your mom go through this and being financially independent allowed you to pursue your purpose. In this case, your purpose was being there for your family members, walking them through this most difficult part of their lives. For a lot of us out there, we don't have something that hits us over the head as drastically, right? We don't have a family member sick. Some of us don't have children. There are people out there saying, okay, I've got my finances in order, but what the heck does purpose look like in my life? How do they go about figuring out what is purposeful to them? Well, I want people to take
1: a step back and I want them to think about certain situations in their life that make them ask or question the life choices that they've made. And most of the time, people start thinking about their life when they're laying in bed. So aside from, (laughs) the the talks of salaries and titles and the show of wealth to others and even feeling comfortable. It's when you're laying in bed at night and you're staring up at the ceiling, are you asking yourself, what did this all mean? Am I doing the things that are important to me? And I can guarantee probably 99.99% of the people have had one of those moments on their path to financial independence or financial well-being They've had this discussion with themselves, and it's probably caused a great deal of anxiety. And so understanding that, acknowledging that does take place, regardless of the financial situation that you're in, what I, what I mention with people in the book is that that void, that idea that something is missing, is purposed. It's something greater than ourselves. And so when I've spoken with people who are very passionate about money or achieving financial independence, I'm like, run with that passion. But understand, passion is what serves you purpose is what serves others. Hmm. And so if you haven't found how you can use your path to financial independence to serve others, you're going to be laying in bed wondering what was all the sacrifice worth it? Did I make the right choices, even though that you are financially well? And so everyone, as I mentioned, 99.99% of people are asking this question. And so if you're not, in, you're not experiencing distress in other parts of your life, chances are you're experiencing that moment where you're looking up at the the ceiling going did I make these right choices and that's when you know that you're in the crust of of this purposeful journey and and that requires you making different decisions that has nothing to do with with money it has more to do with something bigger and larger than anything that you've probably have worked on
0: I'm really interested in this idea of purpose versus the happiness dimensions which you talk about quite a bit in your book but before we get there, what you just said kind of sparked an idea in my mind how much of this financial freedom as we're defining it here has to actually do with money? It has some but <laughs> and, I, and I, I have this trepidation of
1: sharing it but like so money is woven through society and and we've talked about this. but when it comes to freedom, freedom is really a mentality. Freedom is a type of way of living. And so I have met people who have a ton of money, more money than some people ever dream of having, and they are not financially free at all. They are still up at night trying to figure out how to add that extra decimal to their net worth. They're still trying to figure out how to save or cut back when they're making definitely enough. So they're still making financial calculations as opposed to figuring out, What brings joy and happiness into their life? And so that to me is not financial freedom. That to me is still trapped in this cycle of filtering everything through finances. So yes, freedom is going to require money because again, we live in a society that requires money, but freedom is truly a mentality that we need to cultivate and we need to build along the way. And and because it is become it becomes very difficult to to kind of switch, and I think I didn't include this in the book, and it had a lot to do with the editing, but there was this uh, difference that I wanted people to understand: the difference between being financially independent and financially free. And financial independence can be can be the financial numbers that we set, and financial freedom is the mentality, the freedom to be and say and do whatever it is that you want, regardless of the financial situation that you're in. And so there are people who make, who haven't achieved financial independence, who are financially free based on the lifestyle that they've created and the life that they live. And there are people who have millions of dollars of net worth that I've spoken with. And when you sit down with them, they are trapped in this financial world that prevents them to in doing anything else that brings joy and happiness in their
0: life. I feel like we're talking about the mentality here, but I want to get to more specifics. Talk to me about the happiness dimensions. Obviously, wealth, having money is part of that, but it's one of many dimensions. What are the happiness dimensions and how does it kind of play a role in figuring this mentality out?
1: Yeah. So I wanted people to be introduced to the wellness dimension. So it's, it's the wellness dimensions. It's something I didn't create. I thought I was actually a really smart person when I, when I believed I came up with this idea that everything was, was connected and there are different parts of ourselves and doing the research, I realized it existed for decades and, but hasn't been talked about in terms of money, filtering everything through money or through the lens of money. And so the happy dimensions is related to the wellness dimensions and and I want to preface it with the wellness dimensions are your mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, social, environmental, occupational and financial well-being. There are eight dimensions that make you you. Now I I turn the table on these wellness dimensions and call it happy dimensions and I have different words for it. So the happy mind, happy heart, happy body, happy spirit and you you get an idea in terms of one being playful with with the word choices" here, but also getting people to understand that when we're striving for joy and happiness and satisfaction that there are other parts of our lives that we can focus on, and we can use money intentionally in these dimensions and so for instance, when we talk about mental health, when we talk about happy mind. I want people to know how our finances affect our mental health. So I think we all understand that when we are financially stressed, we experience mental distress. If we're unable to pay our bills or we're unable to do the things that we want to do because of the lack of money, that does cause mental distress and will it impair our ability to kind of think positively or enjoy life. Now, there's also an inverse relationship I want people to understand. If you are experiencing mental health crisis, if you're experiencing or been diagnosed with a mental health issue, I want you to know that that condition can also alter your financial decision-making that will lead to financial stress. And so when when someone tells me, it's like, "I, I think I'm doing all the right things with my money. I have the systems in place. I have my goals, but I seem to not be able to make... An upward trajectory like my peers. Well, let's 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 peel back what's going on in your life. And it might be some childhood trauma, it might be some financial issues that you had no control over, and that's causing distress. That's that may have been a clinically diagnosable mental health issue, such as depression or anxiety. And so that does alter. And then and it's it's one way for people to understand the connection and go, okay, well now I have the financial means, what can I do with my financial resources to affect my mental health? And that can relate to getting the support that that we need, getting the therapy, being able to afford the medication if that is necessary. And also through the studies that I've read, one thing that can help us with our happy mind or attaining the happy mind is having better conversations, it's learning new things, It's giving our mind new inputs and new data in order for it to process our situation differently, to be able to perceive what's happened in our life differently. And that that can often require
0: financial resources. I noticed Happy Money, Happy Life is broken into three books. And really, you go into the dimensions and mentality mostly for the first two books. The third book is probably where you talk about more of the hardcore financial principles. Why did you leave that to the end? I left that at
1: the end because there are so many books that do a really great job in talking about the steps one needs to take in order to achieve financial independence, the steps you need to take in order to pay off debt. So all that stuff exists. But for me, what I've learned in my experience is that most people have a challenge, like their challenge in following these steps it all has to do with their mentality. It all has to do with other parts of their lives that are out of alignment or that needs strengthening because they're weak. And that's the reason why they're unable to pay off debt. They're unable to do X, Y, and Z. And just to give an example, right? So I talk about these eight happy dimensions and- And the reason why I spend a good amount of time with them is I want people to know perhaps the reason why you can't pay off debt is that you live in an environment where you may not have access to a better job. You may not have access to the network that you need in order to shift your mindset and also gain the opportunities in order to level up in your career. And so that is the happy work dimension and also the happy space dimension, your environmental and occupational well-being. And when you start understanding those pieces, then you can then you can know that, okay, me focusing solely on my financial health and and trying to follow these steps. The reason why I can't follow these steps is because I am really lacking on this happy work dimension. And I need to focus on switching my mentality, changing my work environment, gaining new skills in order for me to make more money in order for me to actually follow these steps. And so I wanted and you can know you notice that I spend very little pages on on this that had a lot to do with with the time and, and the length of this book. But also for people to understand that there, there are things that are widely available, but the the my belief is that there are other things, these dimensions that are preventing you from following these steps.
0: So there are going to be some people who are hearing us right now that are feeling burned out. Maybe they don't exactly understand why, right? They are in their financial trajectory. It's either not working for them or it's working for them, but it's not making them happy. Obviously they can run out and get your book, happy money, happy life. But what is kind of that first step? Like, how do you, cause I find the first step is always the hardest to take. What does a burned out person going through some of these things do first? Well, when you start questioning your life choices, I want you to
1: take a step back and acknowledge that you are feeling you're finally realizing and being aware that you are burnt out and so that that is kind of one of the key things when you start asking am i making the right have i made the right choices and so the first step in in kind of dealing with burnout is that awareness aspect of it the second step is is really looking at how you are utilizing your time how is your time spent and so you need to do a time audit and if you're if you're you're noticing through this time audit that you're spending way too much time in the work dimension, you're spending 12, 15 hours, you can easily say, yeah, work is what is burning me out. And then that requires some action on your part And how to reduce the time you're exchanging at work. And so that's kind of the, the process that I have undergone because one of the things that I shared in the preface is that I was burnt out in corporate America. And then when I became an entrepreneur, I became burnt out as an entrepreneur. I was chasing the same thing, but like different sides of the coin: salary and titles, and then entrepreneurship goals and influence. and And so, I want people to understand: we can be burnt out doing things we don't like, and get burnt out doing things we love. And so that has a that has a lot to deal with. Where are we placing our time? Where are we spending most of our time? And and then cutting back and then reallocating that time. And also some of the financial resources and the wins that you've had into, the, into these other dimensions. And so if you are feeling burnt out because of your work, well, the answer might be working on your social health and leaning into your family and friends and investing more time, taking a friend out to, to dinner, taking your family out on a, a nice vacation what have you, and work on a different dimension. That That's one way to, to deal with burnout.
0: Writing a book is a long journey. I just went through it. You've now gone through it twice. Tell me what you learned about yourself writing Happy Money, Happy Life. That I will never have all the
1: answers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of one of the beauty of writing books and one thing my first editor shared with me when I wrote my first book, because I wanted everything to be in this first book, You Only Live Once. And she said, that book only encapsulates a period of your life from one point to the point you are in today. Don't think about the journey that you're currently going in because you will change. And that's the beauty of living is that we do change. We grow. We we go on this journey. And so for me, writing two books, I realized how much I have changed. And that change is the only thing that's constant in this world. And I want people to understand how the the beauty in change and accepting change and knowing the resources and tools that are available to to make change a little less jarring of an experience. And, And so for me, I have changed. In that, in the acceptance that I have control in aspects of my life and I don't have control and much more of it. And I'm
0: okay with that. Well, Jason, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. That last piece about change really, I think, hits me quite a bit in this conversation because Things change. Life changes. Our goals change. Sometimes we burn out even on doing those things that we love. It starts to make you realize a few things. One is sometimes the process that we go through is probably more important than the goal itself. But also this idea that we have multiple dimensions to happiness and that we have to spend time working on them all. And when things aren't working out right, It's time to go back and look at those other parts of our lives and decide what isn't in order, what isn't in balance. I wanted to end this episode the way and every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where we can find you. Clearly, we can find Happy Money, Happy Life in bookstores across the United States, as well as online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target. I'm sure it's in all those places. Where can we find you if we want to know more information or ask questions?
1: Yeah. So I encourage everyone to come follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm active in both platform at Jason Vtug, So that's fairly simple. And I do want to say that if you do follow me on Instagram, I share a lot of videos on breath work and yoga and things that are health focused. And at frugal, P-H-R-O-O-G-A-L, if you're looking for more of the financial tips. And so there are are two ways for you to reach out to me, and that's on social media, as well as my website that you've, you've mentioned. And what's up next in my life And Doc G, I think you love this. It's I'm working on a third book, but this time it's not money focused. It's on, it's a memoir based on my life experiences and gives people a a deeper insight. And it does walk through, you know, I wrote a book on time and I wrote a book on happiness. And now I'm writing a
0: book on self-love. I think the best time to come out with a new book is right after you finish your last one. I certainly will look forward to reading it. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. and by of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Jason VTug. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. Awesome. I leave the tape going just so that we can chat a little bit as the after show. Okay. um man you 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 did an excellent job and clearly as I talk to you during this conversation, I can tell how deeply this stuff hits you and I, I um yeah you realize that i I really think most of us get money wrong <laughs> I think I got money wrong for a lot of my life um it sounds like you went through a lot of that too I think it's just so common that we we put like all our hopes our dreams we put everything into either having money or not having money. And at some point, you look at your life and say, yeah, kind of beside the point, right? Again, we needed to do some things, um, but it's not not fixing other things in our life either.
1: Yeah, you're right. I think we needed to do some things, and that thing was the financial thing, right? So when I talk about wellness things, so the thing that we needed to do, because it's a society that we've, we, we've grew up in, is that we needed to do the financial thing. And then after doing the financial thing, we do wonder about the other things in our lives. And so for me, <laughs> like I was like okay, I achieved this level of financial success. What's next? What does this all mean? And and it's interesting, right? Because for a while I I pushed against the the FIRE movement and people didn't go, it's like I didn't know that you were financially independent. I didn't know that you retired early. And I'm like, well, yeah, I could certainly fit that mode, that that model. But I was always looking for something more. And when I remember when I was, this was like 2014, 2015, and I kept talking about purpose, and I kept talking about there is something much more than financial numbers. I was getting pushed back. And then as my first book came out, I was having conversations with uh, a number of key folks in the financial independence movement, and they were telling me, it's like, well, I just want to let you know. And this wasn't included in the book and it was, um, it's like, oh, we're talking about financial independence and I'm actually going through a divorce right now and a separation. Yeah, yeah. And so it was like, I, I totally get that. And that's like, well, what was the lesson? It's, we focused so much on the goal and we didn't, we, for, we forgot to get to know each other during the journey. And so when we achieved it, we looked at each other and said, who are you? Mm-hmm. and and so and so that for me was and i and i was encouraging them to talk about it uh much more if you're public about all these other aspects of your life and you're keeping that secret it is a disservice to to everyone else in in the movement because they need to know that money isn't going to solve that problem and waiting to work on the relationship or losing that time yeah. uh to to get to know each other i mean you know it like in, in taking stock like i mean it was that emphasis and and those conversations with people. It's just, it's, it's for me, it's like, I want to, to, to get the word out that you are an optimist if you have financial goals and, but there's much more, there's much more to that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me and, and this whole idea is that finances are really important. Like getting a good financial framework is a important thing. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, it's just, it's something you do in service of the rest. <laughs> yeah. And i f- i feel like we sometimes lose the in service for the rest part. Um it's it's fascinating, right? Because it's like
1: we need the financial means to live in this world and if we can if we can make ourselves financially healthy, then there is one less thing we need to focus on. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's like when we get it right in the financial dimension, we think that's the only thing that we can do, and so <laughs> we like we're, done. we're done. Yeah, we're done. And then we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna devote more time to it. And then you go, okay, well, is a million enough? Is two million? Is three million? And so when I hear people talk about four million not being enough, I I, I look at them and I go, well, how about other aspects of your life? Yeah. What else? Are you, what else are you working on? And it's like, oh yeah, we we haven't gone on that family vacation because we're we're now looking at that four million mark. I mean, if you're able to achieve 3 million and at 40 years old, well, there's a guarantee somehow in there that you can achieve 4 million, maybe 10 years from now, not, a, not in such a short time frame. So what other areas do you want to work on? And I remember I spoke with this multimillionaire and he was very healthy in the, the work dimension. So he was, I think, 10, 15 million a year in his business. And he goes, I am building a business that's helping my family, but I also realize my kids are getting older. (laughs) And so I'll go, well, can't you make less money and spend more time with your kids? And that was such a new concept. He's like, what? (laughs) Yeah, he's like, what? And I go, listen, it is okay if work is more important than your family's no 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 like family's really important i'm like how you like it then (laughs) yeah how you're spending your time shows me that work is much more important and that's okay because some to some people work is much more important than their family and once you accept that you're going to feel a little little uh, more free but if you're telling me that family is more important then is it really uh uh a good way to kind of spend more your time in the, in that business. And, and so he shifted and said, okay, I can hire more people. I don't need to make this much and I could work less. And he says like, he's enjoying it. And it actually spurred on a new idea of creating a different business geared towards chill. So of course, when you're a business person, you're like <laughs> coming what you up. Do. Yeah. That's what you do. But he shifted, and and I think that's why entrepreneurs also burn out, right? It's because it's like we achieve a certain goal and we keep striving and striving, and it's just this that hedonic treadmill piece of it. Yeah. And that's something I didn't mention that I that I liked. I I I used to be in this belief too. It's like, oh, I want to visit all all the countries in the world, and that's hedonic. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's a, it's totally on treadmill, and it's because. Totally. Yeah. what what experiences are you having in those places if you're just going to visit for a day or two days just to say you've been there and and so and that's okay that's okay if that's that's your goal and understanding that is your goal but also knowing that it's just like a, yeah a hit of dopamine and then you're like where am i where am i off to next and yeah
0: yeah, no, I I definitely connect with what you're saying about this businessman you're talking to because I have an 18 year old and a 15 year old, so my 18 year old's going off to college soon. So, oh, okay. you know, we've become very aware of this idea that you know once he leaves the house, we're just not going to see him nearly as much. When um, you start really thinking about, well, do I really want to spend my time editing this podcast or making this extra dollar or or he's running out to the store and asked if I want to come. Maybe I should put this down and go spend, you know, 20 minutes with him on the car ride. And you start really thinking about that stuff and right, really start measuring it. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for having this uh, conversation. Thank you so much for coming on.